Welcome back guys to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. I'm your host as always Adam MacDonald and it's been a couple of weeks since I got up a episode and that's because I was at the WMBF World so I was in the final few weeks of my contest preparation for the last show of my bodybuilding season and I'll talk more about that in a future episode when I start doing some solo episodes but it just was taking up some time so now I'm back into it now. This episode today I actually recorded about six months ago but it was before I started the podcasts, and I thought it would be very valuable to share this episode on this podcast platform. The guest with me today is James Clear. He is a best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author. He's sold I think over a million copies of his book Atomic Habits over the last 12 months and I was really lucky to get him on the podcast. It took me a very long time actually. Um, I'm a little bit sick in this episode, you can kind of tell from my voice, but nonetheless I think the content of this episode and getting to speak to James was an invaluable experience. So if you do enjoy it, make sure to leave a comment and subscribe. And everything that we talk about in this podcast is very applicable to any situations, not just to your health or your fitness, but we talk everything about how to set up routines, habits, identity, all those things related to atomic habits and the stuff that he talks about in his book. So without further ado, I want to introduce my next guest, best-selling author James Clear. All right, so today I'm here with James Clear from Atomic Habits, the author of Atomic Habits, New York Times bestseller. I actually saw your book in Edinburgh last week and then I think two weeks ago I was in Vegas, I saw it there and I was just like, it's popping up everywhere. So thank you so much, James, for coming on today. I know it's been a while trying to get you on, but you're extremely busy and I really appreciate you coming on here today and giving your your view and your thoughts on things. And um, yeah, I'll let you introduce yourself. So James, let me just ask the first question. Um, how did you get into this? How did you, you know, what is your background? Um, I don't think you you actually had like any kind of background in this. You You originally came from a different background and you kind of built your way up through your website and writing a blog and eventually you're you got to this it seems like almost like an overnight success yeah well um it definitely didn't feel that way uh during the during the process but um thank you uh first of all glad you're enjoying the book and it is cool to see it popping up different places um the quick overview is that i write about how to build good habits and break bad ones and I've been doing that since late 2012. Um, so around that time, I started writing at jamesclear.com and I decided that I would write a new article every Monday and Thursday. And so it was really that twice a week writing habit that kind of like set me on this trajectory. Yep. And you're right, I, I didn't have a formal background in habits or behavior change or psychology. Um, there's not really anybody who has a formal background in habits, but um, but you might be like more tangentially related if you like, for example, had a PhD in psych or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, I was feeling this kind of imposter syndrome early on and I was talking to a friend about it and he said, well, uh, you know, I was kind of like, well, who am I to write about this stuff? And he said, well, the way you become an expert is by writing about it every week. And so I really internalized that idea and just tried to show up every Monday and Thursday. And it turns out that, you know, if you do that for a few years, there actually aren't that many people who have written, you know, 150 articles on habits and performance and behavior change. And so you kind of do develop an expertise. And I think um, Paul Graham has a famous quote where he says like, one year of hard work and caring a lot will probably be enough in most fields. 
And I think that's true. Like it was true for me. It's probably true for many different areas of life. Most people don't do an intense, dedicated period of learning for like a year on a particular topic. And if you do, you'll probably be in like the 99th percentile for whatever that particular domain is. So anyway, that was kind of how I got started. And then the more that I wrote about those topics, the more it seemed for whatever reason, uh, people would come and share them and like kind of resonate with that. And I had other things that I wrote about in the beginning as well, like strength training, or I'll still dip into other topics like creativity or productivity or decision making. And all of those things are important, but habits was the one that for whatever reason, my thoughts on that seemed to stick. And so uh, I stuck with that and uh, signed a book deal after about three years. Um, and then I spent the last two or three years working on the book, producing it, and then eventually launching Atomic Habits. So it was kind of a, from the start of launching the site to hitting the bestsellers list was about like a six year process. Um, but, uh, but I like iterated and learned a lot along the way. And is there any particular reason you chose habits? I mean, it's, it's a kind of peculiar topic. I mean, it's important in every every person's life. I mean, everybody has habits, whether they're good or bad, but why do you feel that you, you picked that? Was it a personal thing that you had any particular bad habits or were you trying to cultivate new ones and you were just like, if I write about it, maybe it'll help me if I research it? Yeah. It, I mean, it certainly was a personal um, endeavor in some sense, right? Like I said, everybody has habits. We're all building them. I feel like because of that, it's important to understand them. You know, you're going to be building them anyway. So you might as well understand how they work and how to design them to your liking so that you can actually get them to work for you rather than against you. But uh, habits do sort of occupy this interesting and as you said, like maybe even peculiar space, which is that they have mass market appeal. Everybody has them, we all know they're important. Uh, but you can also discuss them in a very scientific way. And I, you know, my background is as a more science-minded person. I, uh, in undergrad, I studied chemistry and physics and like the hard sciences. And that way of thinking, that style of approaching a problem resonates with me. And I want to share ideas that are both scientifically backed and stand up to like practical experience and actually work in the real world. And habits is one of the areas where you can talk about things in that way. You can talk about self-improvement in a very scientific way. And I don't, um, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with saying things like, just believe in yourself or fake it till you make it or like the standard kind of self-help positive thinking uh, stuff. It's not, if you have a choice, thinking positive is probably better than thinking negative about yourself. But I really like things that can be rooted in some kind of like scientific experiment or have some kind of scientific backing or theory and then you can actually implement them in the real world. So habits is one of those spaces that is both scientifically backed and highly applicable to daily life. And uh, that's kind of the the piece that I'm looking for that's interesting. How do we translate science into something I can actually use? Yeah, makes makes total sense. And you talked a little bit about when you're first beginning off as a as an author or a blogger or whatever you started off as, that you kind of had this imposter syndrome and it wasn't until you literally just did the the habit every single day or the action every day that you eventually got the identity, I guess. And that's something you talk a lot about in your book. And I've noticed it a lot with people. So in my profession, my coaching profession, I work with a lot of people who know exactly what they need to do, but they just, they just can't seem to get it. And they, they want the change, but, and they ask me, well, how do you, how are you able to like stick to things and refuse certain, you know, junk food or not skip the gym on a consistent basis? 
And it, it boils down to just your identity and who you view yourself as. And if you view yourself as somebody who is, you know, lazy or whatever, you'll start to act in a line with what that person does. So how do you actually make that identity shift? Because we kind of know, well, maybe we don't know, but we, we, the thing we don't, we need to do is shift that identity rather than just saying, well, I need to, I need to do this. I need to actually change my identity. So how does one go about actually shifting their identity or what would you say? Like how, how would a person actually go and say, well, this is the person that I want to become now. How do I actually shift my identity? So I start to act and align with that and stop self-sabotaging or actually do what I know I need to do. Yeah. I mean, this is an important question, you know, like there, I think at a deep level, true behavior change is really identity change. And what I mean is that once you start to look at yourself in a new way or adopt this new identity, you're not even really pursuing behavior change anymore. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you believe yourself to be. You know, like if you look at yourself and think, I am a meditator. Well, it doesn't take that much effort to meditate because that's just part of who you think you are. Same way with like, you know, I am a writer. Well, what do writers do? They sit down and write. And so you're, once you have that identity, um, the actions, I think, become easier because they're in alignment with that internal belief. So the question then is, well, how do you get there, right? Like, how do you develop an identity that you don't believe? Um, yeah. And I think this is where small habits become so useful because the way that I would like to phrase it is every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And in the beginning, you don't have many votes. You don't have that much evidence proving that you are that kind of person. But if you keep showing up and casting these vote, votes, even if it's in a small way, writing one sentence, meditating for one minute, doing one push-up, well, you know, did those things transform your results overnight? No, of course not. But they do cast a vote for being a writer or being a meditator or being the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And eventually, if you cast enough votes for that, being that kind of person, you have like this body of evidence to believe in, to actually like have provide proof that, hey, I am that type of person. You know, I mean, this makes sense just in like a logical way. You think about if you uh, go to a practice and, um, you know, you kick a soccer ball around. Well, the first time that you do that, like you don't believe, oh, I'm a soccer player. But if you show up and do it every day for six months or a year or two years, well, then all of a sudden that becomes part of your identity. Same thing for writing or making videos on YouTube or meditating or whatever the, the process is. You show up in a small way and that proves the new identity yourself. I think you could say that hey, your habits are how you embody a particular identity, right? Like every day that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized. Every time you sit down and write one sentence, you embody the identity of someone who's a writer. And the more that you embody those things, uh, the more that you come to believe them by yourself. And the, you know, the last thing I'll say on that, on this whole concept of identity-based habits, is that the, the key distinction, or I think the nuanced piece of my approach that's a little bit different than what you hear, you'll hear people say things like, well, fake it till you make it, right? Which is basically saying, like, believe in the identity beforehand. Um, so you keep telling yourself these things like, oh, I am, I'm, you know, I'm healthy, I'm in shape, even though you haven't gone to the gym yet. Well, we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence, right? Like we call it delusion. So at some point, you know, your brain doesn't like this mismatch between what you're telling yourself and what you're actually doing. And so the nuance, the, the slight difference between my approach and some of the other stuff like that is I think you should let the behavior lead the belief. You let the behavior lead the way and the belief will follow. 
rather than just saying, oh, I'm this new kind of person and trying to uh, fake your way into something different. Mm -hmm. So I like leading with behaviors and habits because they provide evidence of identities. And once you have evidence, you have a reason to believe it. So coming from a place of doing rather than coming from a place of theoretical, now this is who I could become. Like I think so. You know, like the way to be it is to do it. The, I mean, that's, that's one of the great things. A lot of this stuff, you know, like the way to be a writer is to sit down and write. The way to be a meditator is to sit down and meditate. And so this is why I say like, ultimately, the goal is not to run a marathon, it's to become a runner. The goal is not to write a book, it's to become a writer. And so you can do those things just by showing up, even if it's in a small way, but it's really the behavior that proves that identity. So, so would you say that your approach is kind of like a, I suppose, a path of mastery where you're not actually like getting to the destination, but you're just becoming somebody who surrenders to the path of, mm. of that skill or of that profession or of that person. So you're like, you're not, you're not getting a six pack or getting you know, ripped, but you're becoming somebody who is healthy or is a lean living a lean lifestyle. Was it, would that be kind of the, the approach or the, the mindset that you've got or, or am I, Kind of. No, I think that's right. Um, you know, like their true long-term thinking is goalless thinking. It doesn't mean goals don't have, uh, you know, before I like uh, criticize goals too much, like they have a purpose, right? I mean, they're, they're good for sending us, setting a sense of direction for developing some clarity. What should I focus on? Where should I uh, direct my energy and attention? They're also good for filtering. So once you know that you have a goal, it, opportunities are going to come up in life regardless. And if you don't have a clear purpose or a clear goal, it becomes easy just to say yes to whatever opportunity is along the way. But if you have a really clear destination you're working toward, and then somebody offers you uh, an option, you're like, oh, well, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not interested because that doesn't align with my goals. And so, so they're good for setting a sense of direction. They're good for filtering out distractions and staying focused. But once you have a goal, once you know what direction you're moving in, it's almost always more useful to kind of put the goal on the shelf and focus instead on the process or the path, as you say, and kind of de dedicate yourself to this idea of mastery. And this comes back to what I was saying about true long-term thinking is goalless thinking. Because if it was just about the goal, most people would stop once they do it, right? Like if, um, if Tom Brady was only interested in winning the Super Bowl, then he could have stopped like decades ago, you know, once he won his first one. It, they, you win and then you're done, like you did that, you achieved the goal. But it's actually not just about that, right? It, it must be, I don't know how he would define it, but it, like it's got to be about trying to find where his ceiling is or seeing, you know, how much potential he has or um, the process of trying to get better every day and just trying to carve out like another small margin of improvement. But whatever it is that lights him up, it's something much more process focused than just the outcome of winning the Super Bowl. And of course, the ironic part is, if you fall in love with the process like that, then the results often come naturally. And you see this all the time. The people who have the best results in a particular field, they often are, they don't, they don't like need to do the thing anymore, but they, the reason they don't need to do it is because they love the process. So for example, you know, comedians will always say, I walk into the gym and I see all these fit people. I'm like, what are you doing here? You're done. Um, and the reason that they're done is because they love going to the gym, right? Like they, the reason they look like they don't need to work out is for the very, it's because they love the process of working out. Yeah. Or you look at people who have like these big bank accounts. Well, 
like the reason they have the big bank account is because they love reading about investing or figuring out how to uh, save money on taxes or learning how to build businesses and launch products. And like, um, they love the process of sales and marketing and product creation, all that stuff. And because they love that stuff so much, they have a lot of money in the bank. But uh, if it was just about the money in the bank, then they would have stopped a long time ago. Um, and so anyway, you see it in a variety of different areas, but it's the love of the process that naturally leads to the product and the outcome that we often so badly want. Yeah. Coincidentally, I was actually watching a video yesterday by uh, Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you know him, but, um, yeah, he, he was talking about, it's not actually about achieving the goal and humans become extremely unhappy if we're not striving to achieve to, uh, towards a goal or to get towards a goal. It's not necessarily actually getting towards the goal, but the process of trying to attain the goal. So we don't get happier when we get to the goal, but if we're not actually trying to aim for something, then we become mm. extremely happy, unhappy. And my theory- I had a weightlifter tell me that one time. He had just finished competing at uh, the national championships and um, he had done well. He had placed you know, on the podium and he said, the best part is the climb. Like the, be the best part is not, it's not after you won the medal, like then, then everybody's like, Oh, are you going to be able to, you know, maintain your spot at the top of the heap or whatever. But the best part is the, the climb. You go from being an unknown person to progressing up the ranks and then eventually placing in a national competition. Like it's the, it's that whole process of the, you know, two years or five years or however long it takes to climb up that ladder, uh, that striving and progress and achievement, that's what really lights everybody up. And so I think that is true that like humans are, humans are wired to search for achievement, uh, to progress towards goals, to try to move forward and make progress. And so having something that allows you to do that in your life, I think is important for feeling fulfilled. Yeah. I think uh, my theory on it is that, well, we wouldn't have evolution or we wouldn't be always trying to develop new things in society if we didn't think that tomorrow will be a better day, metaphorically speaking, and we're trying to progress, we'd still be, you know, using sticks to light fires. And that's the kind of process that keeps us going, that tomorrow is going to be a better day than like yesterday, regardless of what age you are, or what point, maybe your trajectory or your, your view on life will change as you get older, but it will still be better, or you should be aiming for better than tomorrow. And then you kind of, if you don't have that, that's when you kind of can slip into like depressive modes and Kind of well, you need hope, right? Like you, you need something, you need at least some level of feeling like um, the hope of that tomorrow will be better or that you can improve or that you can make progress, that you have some influence on the outcomes that are coming in the future. And that hope drives you. Like in a sense, every action is, act is motivated by hope. We wouldn't necessarily define it that way. But like when you look across the room and you see a cookie on a plate and you're hopeful that it will taste good. And it's that hope, that anticipation that gets you to walk over and pick it up and take a bite. And so it's true in very small ways. You know, you walk into a dark room and you flip on the light switch. And in a sense, there's like a little tinge of hope that when you do that action, the lights will turn on and you will be able to see. And so it's small things, uh, but then also much bigger things that we talk about, like our purpose and goals mm. and meaning in life and so on. So, so before you get to like looking at the habits, and if you were to do a complete like architecture of somebody's habits do you think it's important that they actually set a goal first and then reverse engineer that true habits or do you just start with habits and and then let the goal kind of manifest or do you think okay well this is my goal now let's kind of break this down into daily habits weekly habits well sometimes um thinking about the goal or getting in like some of these um uh 
thinking exercises paralyzes people. They kind of get overwhelmed. They they start coming up with like, oh, now suddenly I have 10 goals that I want to achieve or like, I'm not quite sure what my purpose is in life. And then they feel paralyzed by that or whatever. So I think the most important thing is just take some kind of action, make some kind of progress, excuse me. Um, It doesn't have to be something big, right? It could be, uh, you know, doing five pushups a day like that. It doesn't matter in the beginning. It should just be something to get momentum going forward. But I do think that it's helpful to ask yourself, most people might not know what their purpose is in life or what their the key identity is they want to build, but they kind of have an idea of what type of results they want. You know, oh, I want to double my income or I want a six pack or I want something like that. They, they have an idea of the, the end outcome. And then I think the question to ask yourself is most people stop there. They say, all right, this is my, this is my goal. I want to get a six pack. So here's my plan for doing it. And then they just assume if I do that, I'll be the kind of person I want to be at the end of it. But I think it's better to invert that process and start with the identity. So ask yourself, who is the type of person that could get a six pack? Well, maybe it's the type of person who cooks meals at home five nights a week, or maybe it's the type of person who goes to the gym four days a week. Um, And you start to back into some of these behaviors that would back up the identity of, of that kind of person. And those are the habits that you focus on building. And I think that that shift from outcomes to identity is an important one, because if you just make it about the outcome, if you just make it about getting six pack abs, then you start doing all kinds of extreme things in the name of trying to get there. You do a radical juice cleanse or some kind of crazy diet, or you think, oh, I need to take on this really intense workout program. But if instead you flip it and you make it about the identity, you say, okay, the type of person that gets six pack abs is the type of person who cooks meals at home five nights a week. Well, now you can be feel successful whenever you're cooking a meal at home and not just when you get six pack abs six months from now or a year from now or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and so it, it kind of gives you permission to enjoy the process a little bit more. And it also makes it a little bit less about that result. It becomes a little bit less about the six pack abs and a little bit more about, am I showing up and cooking meals at home five nights a week? And so um, ultimately your outcomes are usually a lagging measure of your habits, you know, like your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Your weight is a lagging measure of your eating habits. Your knowledge is a lagging measure of your learning habits. And so the real thing to focus on are the habits that lead the way and not the outcomes that follow naturally. Yeah, I get you. So if we're coming, we're kind of coming up to summer, I guess. So people probably do want to get in shape and what, how would you set up, somebody or how would you start new habits you have like a kind of a framework to make habits easy to make them i suppose stick or not too much of a barrier so that people can actually take action on them because we all know we need good habits but what you know we want to set the bar appropriate appropriately so that we'll actually do the habits so how would you go about doing that and rather than saying well i gotta eat clean and i gotta cook seven meals a day and i gotta hit the gym five days a week well no i need to do that but i'm not gonna do it so how would you actually make that how do you start off with that? Yeah. So uh, in Atomic Habits, I divide a habit into four different stages. And I think if you understand those four stages, you kind of have four different points of intervention or like four different levers you can pull for building good habits and breaking bad ones. So just real quick summary. Uh, so the four stages are cue, craving, response, and reward. So the cue is something that gets your attention, like seeing a plate of cookies on the counter is a visual cue or uh, your phone buzzing in your pocket is like a physical or a tactile cue and gets you to do the habit of pulling your phone out. So the cue gets your attention. The second stage, the craving, 
is about how you interpret that cue. And so the way that you interpret the cues and experiences in your life determines how you respond to them. So the second stage is where you feel motivation or don't feel motivation uh, to take action. So for example, let's say two people walk into a room and they see a pack of cigarettes on a table and the first person is a smoker. And so they interpret that visual cue favorably and they think, oh, I have this craving to pick up a cigarette and smoke. The second person has never smoked, and so they interpret that same cue in a totally different way. They see it and they think, oh, it's just a pack of cigarettes and then move on. And so it's really the interpretation of those cues that determines whether you feel motivated to act or not. So that's the second stage. The third stage is the response, which is the actual habit itself. And then finally, there's the fourth stage, which is the reward or the outcome. Um, and so if a habit is rewarding, if it's enjoyable, satisfying, pleasurable, then you have a reason to repeat it in the future. All right, so those are the four stages, cue, craving, response, reward. For each of those stages, we can come up with what I call the four laws of behavior change. And so one of those laws applies to each stage. And this is where we kind of have a practical framework for building good habits and breaking bad ones. So for the cue, the first law of behavior change is to make it obvious. The more obvious, attractive, visible, easy to see, the cues in your life are, the more likely you are to act on them. For the craving, the second law is to make it attractive. So the more attractive and appealing a habit is, the more likely you are to act on it. For the third law, the response, the third law of behavior change is to make it easy. So the easier, simpler, more convenient, frictionless your habits are, the more likely you are to act on them and, and perform them. And then finally, the fourth law of behavior change for the reward is to make it satisfying. So the more satisfying and enjoyable a habit is, the more likely you are to stick with it. All right, so that's the kind of the high-level framework for building a good habit. Make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. And I can give you examples of how to do all those things. Um, if you want to break a bad habit, then you just invert the four laws. Mm -hmm. So rather than making the cues obvious, you make them invisible. Rather than making it attractive, make it unattractive, make it difficult, make it unsatisfying. And so, uh, so yeah, you kind of have like a framework that you can build around there for building good habits and breaking bad ones. So if I'm like, uh, if I know I need to go work out and I actually don't mind working out, but I'm kind of a bit of a lazy bastard. And after work, I come home and I lie on the couch and I open up Doritos and I watch Game of Thrones and I'm like, shit, I really know, I really know I need to go work out, but I just can't do it. Where do I even start? And like yeah. my nutrition, how do I even start about making those Doritos and all these foods? I'm stressed, I'm a bit like tired. How do I make, you know, eating well, eating good food, not eating too much calories? How do I make that attractive, make it easy, and then make eating kind of junk fast food? How do I make that difficult and then actually enjoy it or make it a reward as well? Sure. Yeah. So good question. So let's just go through a few different examples of kind of how to apply these things. So I'll, uh, I'm going to start with the third law and then I'm going to work my way back through the others. So, um, the third law of behavior change is make it easy, right? So that, I think that's your first step. How can I make exercise, making the right choice, the healthy choice as easy as possible? Um, so I actually had one reader who he went to the gym, but he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would get in his car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds silly to people at first, right? It sounds ridiculous. It's like, clearly, this is not going to be the thing that gets this guy in shape. But what you realize is that he was becoming the type of person who went to the gym four days a week, right? He was mastering the art of showing up, even if it was just in a really small way. And I think that's a crucial part, especially in the beginning. People overlook this. 
a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? Like you need to make it the normal in your life, the standard before you worry about optimizing and expanding and doing more. So whether it's doing five push-ups or going to the gym for five minutes or whatever it is, putting on your running shoes and stepping out the door and that just being like, that's the whole habit. If you run even a step, it's just a bonus. Um, that stuff doesn't sound ambitious at first, but it, it's harder than you would think. If you can't become the type of person that puts your running shoes on and steps out the door each day, even if you don't take another step, you don't have a chance to be the kind of person who goes for a run for 45 minutes, five days a week, right? Like you, you got to master that first. So master the art of showing up and then expand from there. So that's the, that's a, an example of making it easy. And then there are a variety of other ones for the, uh, for the other three stages. So like for, let's go back to the first stage. So make it obvious. You want the cues to be obvious. Well, you could choose a gym that is on your commute to work. There, there have been some studies that have shown even if the gym's a couple blocks out of the way from your commute, then it feels like, oh, I'm going the wrong way. And so it's just kind of a hassle and you don't go as often. So make it as obvious as possible, put it right, right in the path of your commute. Um, if you're talking about running, you can set your running shoes and your clothes out the night before uh, or put them right by the door so that you've seen them. So you're trying to put them in obvious visual places. I actually have a couple readers who they will actually sleep in their running clothes uh, so that all they have to do is get out of bed and put their running shoes on and just walk out. Um, so that's an exa another example of making it easy. So making it obvious is about kind of setting up those visual cues. Make it attractive. So let's say, for example, that you go to bed tonight and you think, all right, tomorrow's gonna be the day. I'm gonna wake up at six and I'm gonna go for a run before work. And then 6 a.m. comes around and your bed is warm, it's cold outside, and you're like, well, maybe I'll just press news. But if you rewind the clock and come back to today and you text your friend and you say, hey, let's meet at the park at 6.30 and go for a run. Well, now 6 a.m. rolls around and your bed is still warm and still cold outside, but if you don't get up and go to the park and run, you're a jerk because you leave your friend there all alone. And so suddenly what you've done is you've made it more attractive to go for, to get up and go for a run than it was previously, right? And so this is what psychologists call a commitment device. It's a choice you make in the present that commits yourself to a future action. And so commitment devices can be a really helpful way to make habits more attractive uh, than they otherwise would be. The, uh, the other way, one, another, there are a variety of ways, but another good way to make a habits more attractive comes down to your social reinforcement or your tribe, the people you hang out with. Um, so humans want to belong. We're wired to belong. We want to fit in with the tribe to be approved by those around us to get the praise and recognition of the people that we're surrounded by. And so one of the really key factors in getting a habit to stick for the long run is to join a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal in that group, then you're going to be praised for doing the habit. You're going to stick to it because it's going to help you fit in. And so uh, that can also be a key element for making habits more attractive. We've already talked about the third law, making it easy. So then the final one is to make it satisfying. And the key element with adding a bit of reward to your habits is the speed. So you want the reward to be immediate. You want there to be some kind of instant gratification for doing the thing that pays off in the long run. And this is one of the challenges for breaking bad habits and building good ones, which is that there's kind of this like misalignment of rewards. So with a bad habit, the rewards are often in the present. There's kind of like an immediate outcome and an ultimate outcome. Right. So like 
the immediate outcome of eating a donut is great. It's sweet, it's sugary, it's tasty, it, it tastes good in the moment. It's only the ultimate outcome if you repeat that habit for six months or a year or two years that's unfavorable. With good habits, though, it's often the reverse. Like, what is the immediate outcome of going to the gym for three weeks? It's not really that favorable. Like, if anything, your body's probably sore. You've been putting effort in and time in, but your body hasn't changed yet. Like, you don't really have a whole lot to show for it. It's only the ultimate outcome, six months or a year or two years from now, that your body has changed. You've gotten the results you've wanted, and that's actually favorable. So a lot of the challenge is figuring out ways to feel some, you kind of want to get through that like valley of death in the beginning. How can I feel satisfied in the moment while I'm waiting for the, the for these delayed rewards to accumulate? So one quick example of how to do this. Um, let's say that you, uh, you start going for a run and you go for a run, let's say, I don't know, three days a week or something. And each time you come back, you have this big jar of marbles. And in the jar, you have 90 uh, blue marbles and 10 red ones. And when you pull out, each time you come back, you pull a marble out of the jar. And if you pull out one of the 90, nothing happens. Just like pat on the back, good job, do what you're supposed to do. Uh, but if you pull out one of the 10, then you get some kind of reward. Maybe you get to watch Netflix for an hour and not feel guilty about it. Maybe you get to take a bubble bath. Maybe you get to buy a new jacket that you've been wanting. Whatever it is, something that motivates you. And um, so that adds an element of surprise and delight and kind of instant gratification to the process of going for a run and, uh, you know, and waiting for that kind of long-term outcome of getting in shape. So the one caveat with that, with these kind of instant rewards or some extra kind of reinforcement is I think that you should be careful to choose rewards that don't conflict with the type of identity you're trying to build, right? Like sometimes people will be like, oh, I went for a run. So my reward is a cup of ice cream. And so you're kind of like casting one vote for being a healthy person and one vote for not. So it's sort of a wash. So instead, if you said, well, my reward is a bubble bath. Well, now kind of both of those things, a bubble bath and going for a run are count. They're like casting a vote for being a healthy person or taking care of my body. And so you're kind of aligned. Now, I don't think it has to perfectly align, right? It could be like buying yourself the new jacket, which doesn't have really anything to do with being healthy, but it's just a, a reward that doesn't conflict with that desired identity. So um, anyway, that's just kind of a quick rundown of those four laws of behavior change and how to apply them to something like exercise. So, so with exercise often, or like healthy habits, we don't necessarily, it's hard to often like enjoy it at the beginning. So like you said, it's, uh, you said it's more favorable to do it. It's, it's probably just like, I would say you're using leverage or it's, or it's less painful to uh, go and do a run with your friend rather than it's, it's more favorable. It's just, uh, you know, you're actually less pain. So using things like leverage and that's why I actually notice with when people get a lot of free information and they don't actually apply it, it's because they don't have that leverage. So if you pay a lot of money for something and it's the same information or the same kind of coaching or the same advice, you'll actually be more likely or inclined to do it because of that leverage or that pain of actually the money that you're going to lose if you don't take action on it. Yeah. What you find is that these, and this is true for all kinds of things with habits, but habits are a double-edged sword. So they can either build you up or cut you down. And uh, all the principles that we're talking about, they can like either work for you or against you. And so in many cases, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. You know, like you have that example I gave of texting your friend and going for a run at the park. 
uh, it both makes it more attractive to get out of bed and go for a run, but it also makes it less attractive to press snooze and sleep in. And so it just kind of depends on the lens through which you look at it, right? Like on the one side, it's increasing the cost or increasing the pain. On the other side, it's increasing the pleasure or uh, yeah. making it easier. And yeah. so um, you're kind of simultaneously doing both. It just depends on how you, what yeah. angle you take. Yeah. You and, and I really like the idea of the, the reward. So I have this uh, big dry wipe chart on my board, on, on my wall, sorry. And it's just the calendar and I'm uh, dieting for a competition. So often it's not that good because I'm hungry and tired and mm. I got to get the quite low levels of body fat. So I'm writing my, my weight up every day as I, as, I, um, as I weigh myself, but I could use an app. You know, I have, a, I have two phones that both have, you know, multiple apps that you could put your, your, um, your weight in. And people ask me, like, what, why do you do it on the dry whiteboard? Why don't you just use an app? And then I realized that I actually get this instant dopamine hit when I see my weight going down every day mm -hmm. on this big chart rather than logging in an app. So it's kind of like, that's like an, a mini win every morning for me when I see like, oh, my weight has dropped by half a pound rather than putting in an app and saying, well, my weight is going down. Because in reality, what I'm trying to do is not track my weight on the wall, but just have this visual kind of success story where I get this little win every single day and it's working perfectly. And every time I fill it up, I just wipe it out and start again. So that's yeah. a great example. I like that phrase, visual success story, because you're, what you're really trying to do is you're not trying to track your weight. You're trying to track your progress. You're yeah. trying to visualize and be able to see the fact that you're moving forward. And, you know, one of the most motivating feelings for the human brain is the feeling of progress. If you feel like you're making progress and you're moving forward, you have every reason in the world to continue with what you're doing because it's working. I'm, I'm getting there. Right. And that feels good. It feels good for any human to make progress. And so being able to see your progress, to visualize it in some way, can be a really powerful way to motivate yourself. You know, so technically, yeah, sure, logging your weight in the app and like the app could give you a chart or something and you could maybe visualize it or see it that way. But that's only true if you've opened the app up and you're looking at it. Whereas this chart that's on your wall, every time you walk into the room, it's right there staring you in the face, right? You, you're able to see that progress a little better. It's, it's around you all the time. And that visual cue of, hey, this is working, you're moving forward, it's a great reminder to stick with the process. And so whether it's something like writing your weight up on, uh, on the wall or uh, using a habit tracker, um, you know, just like putting an X on the calendar the that you do your habit, those forms of visual progress, I think, are really uh, can be very useful uh, to help you stick with it when you feel like, oh, you know, today was a waste. Well, now you actually have some visual evidence that maybe it wasn't and that you're moving forward. Yeah, excellent points. So final question, James, for you. Um, looking, I suppose, in retrospect, or maybe not even retrospect, looking forward, if you were to give, let's say, a, a set or a kind of a number of habits that you think successful people or successful man in total would kind of embody, what would those habits be? And, and can you have too many habits, I guess? So if there was like a, a number of habits, if you feel that there's a, like a handful that you should be focusing on and like mm -hmm. to, to be well-rounded successful, because obviously we gave the example and we talked about ex and extended about, you know, if you want to be successful in terms of your physique, you know, you got to focus on these things. But as someone who's generally successful, let's say wealthy, they have good relationships, they have um, you know, good, good health. Isn't it actually possible to focus on all of these things and have habits in all of the areas or 
or do you think you can kind of only be like a, a master in one area? Like, do you have certain areas of your life where you feel like, oh, my habits are absolutely shit in this area? Or, mm. or do you think that you can actually have like a ha- good habits in every, every aspect and be quite successful? Um, yeah. Okay. So it's an interesting question there. I think there are a couple things to keep in mind. So, um, Paul Graham, who's famous entrepreneur and investor, founder of Y Combinator. Um, he has this kind of concept where he talks about doing things that are upwind of, of other things. So for example, uh, let's take a student who's going to college. Um, you, and you're interested in potentially studying, I think the example he gives is math or economics. He says, well, if you're interested in both, then you should always choose math because if you have an undergraduate degree in math, you can very easily get into a graduate degree in economics. But if you have a graduate degree in economics, it's much harder to get into, or if you have an undergraduate degree in economics, it's much harder to get into a graduate program in math. And so his point is, math is upwind of economics. It gives you more options, right? It opens up more future uh, potential choices for you. So um, I think you could say that about habits as well. So like, the, the short answer to your question, can you have great habits in all areas of life, is no, not at the same time. But you don't have to do it all at the same time. So for example, um, figuring out your getting your financial situation sorted and figured out, well, that gives you a lot of options. Now you can, if you're focused on other habits like uh, getting in shape or um, uh, you know, having a clean room or things like that. Well, you can hire someone to clean your room or you can hire a personal trainer or so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are certain habits that are maybe upwind of other ones, uh, that make the other habits easier. And I don't know what that is for each individual person, but it's worth asking yourself that question. Like of the habits I'm considering building, would it make more sense to build one first? Because that makes the, the other ones easier in the future. So there's a little bit of a sequencing thing there. Um, I do think that there are some habits that tend to be recurring themes across successful people, you know, like there, there's an infinite number of ways to be successful. So there's no one playbook, but there are a couple things that like really help. So for example, um, I'm going to say reading, but it really, what it really is, is like being curious. It doesn't just have to be reading books. It could be listening to a ton of podcasts and taking notes or watching YouTube videos or whatever. It could even be like Twitter if you're very curated and following people that are actually like um, improving your knowledge rather than just following celebrities or something like that. Um, But my point is the habit of reading is sort of like a meta habit because if you have that, you can solve almost any other habit. You know, like you want to learn how to start a YouTube uh, channel? Great. You can read a book on that. You want to learn how to six pack abs, you can read a book on that. You want to learn how to master your finances and investing. There are tons of books on that. So like if you master the habit of reading, whatever the next problem is in your life, you can find a book that can help you solve that. And so it's sort of like reading is a meta habit that solves the others. So, um, I guess we could say reading is upwind of, uh, almost any other habit that you want to perform. So there are some things like that. And then, uh, and then the last thing I'll say is that there are sort of habit, what I call habits of energy and habits of focus and mastering both of those is really important for, uh, moving forward in a particular area. So habits of energy mostly come down to your physical health, sleeping eight hours a day, eating a relatively healthy diet, uh, finding some form of exercise doesn't have to be strength training. Like, you know, that's what I'm interested in, but not everybody has to work out like a bodybuilder. You could go hiking or rock climbing or kayaking, or just walk outside for 20 minutes a day, whatever you want. 
but some kind of exercise. And those things, sleep, nutrition, working out, they're kind of habits of energy. They make sure that you have the energy to take advantage of the time that you have each day. You know, a lot of people talk about things like, oh, I don't have enough time to do this. But the truth is, most of us have, like we could find an hour if you wanted to find it. The problem is you find the hour, but you're exhausted or you're stressed or you're tired. So you don't have the energy to take advantage of the hour. So habits of energy kind of help with that. And then the other one is habits of focus. Um, you know, like I said, there are an infinite way, number of ways to be successful. But at the end of the day, you look around and pretty much anybody who is successful in a particular domain, they're focused on that one domain. They, they, um, they don't get distracted by trying to do too many things. Instead, they try to become great at one thing. And so one habit of focus that I've been employing over the last year is I leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. And it's a small thing, but it gives me three to four hours where I can focus without distractions and work on my agenda rather than somebody else's. Um, another example of a habit of focus is to use like a website blocker so that you can block social media or sports websites or whatever you're browsing during the day that pulls you off course. So things like that um, help keep you on task and make sure that you have the attention you need to take advantage of the time assuming that you have the energy to do so. And so focus and energy, I think, are two big things to consider as well. So there's, there's no reason why you couldn't, I guess, focus on, uh, excuse the kind of rep repetition of the word focus, but you couldn't, I suppose, hone in on a focus habit and an energy habit at the same time. Like you're trying to, let's say, lose weight, but also you're trying to reduce the time you spend on social media. You could simultaneously, or do you think that there's too, like, uh, too much mental energy or pull trying to do those both at once so you have to kind of get the identity or of one where you actually okay i never use my phone anymore and now i'm going to start working on my health if the habits are small enough then you can do multiple at one time i tend to say focus on one thing rather than doing doing multiple you also can find that like habits are tied to context that's how you learn what to do you know it's like oh i'm in my living room at 7 p.m this is when i watch netflix for an hour and like, you don't think that consciously, but that's kind of your brain is tied that context to the habit of watching Netflix. So um, one thing that you can do is if you change context, then that can be a good time to try to build a new habit. So for example, like maybe you have one habit you're working on at home and you have one habit you're working on at the office. And so the two contexts are different enough that you can like, hey, oh, I try to do this thing here and this thing there. Hmm. Um, but something else to consider is that I think it's useful. It depends on how ambitious you're being. It depends on how, how big of a thing you're working on. You know, if you're working on things that are small, like flossing or doing five push-ups or meditating for one minute, like that's small enough that you could probably try to do all three of those. Um, but if you're working on trying to do something really big, like for example, if you're uh, currently cutting weight for a bodybuilding competition or something, that's kind of a big goal. And it sort of like structures the rest of your life. It structures like the rest of your day is kind of built around that. And I don't think it makes sense to try to do like three or four of those things at once to like try to prep for a bodybuilding competition and start a business and uh, write a book, you know, like all those things are like kind of big things. And each one of them, if you were going to do them really, really well, you would actually organize the rest of your life around that one thing. Um, and what you find is that People say they're just focused on one thing, but there's often a collection of habits associated with that. So if you want to get ready for a bodybuilding competition, you might view that as one goal, 
But really, if it's your first time doing it, you have to learn a lot of new habits associated with that. You need to figure out, you need new meal planning habits, new grocery shopping habits, new habits for prepping and cooking food, new habits for cleaning up after your meals. Um, there's like a lot that goes into it. And so the bigger the goal, the more likely there it is that there'll be a lot of sub habits. And so for that stuff, I think it's really helpful just to focus on one, organize your life around it, and then you can start knocking off some of those sub habits that contribute to the larger uh, objective. Perfect. Thanks so much for that answer. Um, you mentioned that um, in the book, you mentioned that you can't really ever give up a habit. It's kind of, you just, it just becomes part of you. And the day you give it up is kind of the day that you no longer embody that identity. So we, we kind of hear of people saying, well, it takes 21 days for a habit or it takes 66 days or it's an average. Um, is there a specific time or is it a, a time frame? I, know there's pro- I think there was like one study done on And then is there a, a kind of a time frame where you actually can say, well, now I'm, I have the identity as this person, or is it not something that you just kind of wake up and feel? It's just kind of over time. Well, you know, it's a common question. Like you said, you hear all kinds of things, 21 days, 30 days to build habit. Um, there was a study done that showed that on average it was about 66 days to, to building a habit. But even within that study, it was kind of, the range was quite wide. Like if you took something easy, like drinking a glass of water at lunch every day, it was just a few weeks. And then more difficult habits like going for a run after work every night was seven or eight months. So the range is really wide. I don't know that 66 days really tells you anything super meaningful. Although it can be helpful to think, okay, this is going to be a few months, like rather than, you know, thinking like, oh, if I just do it for 21 days, then I'll be done. But I think there's a deeper kind of assumption when people usually ask that question, which is, well, how long until it's easy? right? How long until I don't have to work on it anymore? How long until it's just like kind of on autopilot? And I think the honest answer to how long does it take to build a habit is forever, because if you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit, right? And I think that understanding that, or maybe embracing that philosophy, it helps you see habits as like a lifestyle to be lived and not a finish line to be crossed. And if you look at it that way, then you're asking yourself, all right, what is the sustainable change? What is a non-threatening change? What is something I can do that I can actually make my new normal that can become part of my daily life? Not just like the sprint that I'll go on for 30 days and then it'll all be done. Because, you know, whether you're talking about health or meditation or uh, something related to your career or business, like, it's not like, oh, I just worked hard on this for 30 days. And now I'm a healthy person. I don't have to think about it anymore. Right? It's like, no, you build a healthy lifestyle. And that's how you maintain your identity as a healthy person. So I think it's much more about creating a lifestyle that you can live day in and day out and much less about making some life changing uh, result after 21 days or 30 days or 66 days or whatever it is. Mm, Yeah, thanks a lot, man. So James, um, we're going to wrap it up here. Um, thanks so much for your time. Where can we find more about yourself and what, what are you doing over the next couple of months? What's on the cards for you? It looks like you're in a hotel room maybe or somewhere. Yes. Yeah. I'm traveling right now. I'm speaking at LinkedIn uh, later today. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, thanks for the opportunity. Um, you can find my work at jamesclear.com. And, and if you click on articles, you can find uh, different articles that um, are organized by topic uh, and just kind of poke around on whatever's interesting to you. If you click on books, you can find a copy of Atomic Habits there and also the Habit Journal, which is sort of this journal that I put together that has habit tracker templates in it and uh, makes the habit of journaling easier. And it also is mostly a doc grid notebook, so you can use it however you would normally use a notebook. But anyway, so that's there. And uh, all my social media profiles are are at jamesclear.com as well. 
Um, as far as what's coming up, uh, I'll be toying with some new ideas uh, as far as like maybe another book at some point. So writing about that, seeing how that goes. Um, I'm speaking at a lot of different companies and, and places right now. So we'll see, uh, we'll continue that for the near future. And, uh, and also some travel for, for fun. So it should be a good, uh, a good next few months. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on the channel again. And I will leave all your, your links, your social profiles, uh, your course as well. I know you have a course and uh, your books down below. So appreciate it, James, and uh, have a great day. So guys, thank you so much. If you're still here listening to the end of the podcast, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I probably thought that this was one of my favorite ones simply due to the fact that there's not many experts in productivity or habits and it's an area of interest to me that I find very intriguing and something that you can apply to everyday aspects of life like I said not just your health or your fitness but of course if you can nail your habits and nail your productivity and your routines that's going to have the biggest carryover effect into actually achieving your fitness and health goals. So if you did enjoy the podcast, again, please do leave a rating and review for me because that does help with the algorithm. And if you want to reach out, ask me any questions regarding this podcast or any future ones or you have any personal feedback, you can send me an email. My uh, email is in the show notes as well. You can get me on Instagram. You can just send me a DM. It's at adammac192. And I've also left all of James's uh, work down in the show notes too so you can check out his book you can also check out his website where he has a great blog there basically all the kind of topics similar to the book atomic habits and things that we talked about today as well as his course his habits course that he uses for uh, personal uh, use people can just buy it or sometimes he goes into companies as well and does it at an organizational level what was pretty cool for me in this episode was that after the show we spoke about what james was going to be doing later on that day and he was going to be giving a talk at the headquarters in linkedin which i believe is in california so i can only imagine that he would be charging tens of thousands of dollars for that and he came on and spoke with me uh, for free so it's pretty cool if you just ask people you know reach out to them and say hey are you interested in talking you know this is what i want to talk about blah xyz and um you know the if you never ask the answer is always no so i don't know if i'd be able to get him on now because he's just gotten a lot more popular uh, as of late but it's a good reaffirmation to myself that you know just ask the what's the worst that can happen so again thank you for listening and i hope to see you in the next episode where I'll have on future guests, more so in the area of uh, bulking specifically. So I'm going to have on um, a great uh, guest with me in the next episode talking about how to set up a successful bulk or lean gaining phase in the off season. So thanks so much and I will chat to you in the next episode.